another unedited one. I'm going to keep these coming until they get really bad. And then in that case, I would change back. But made a big change today in my office. I got rid of my standing desk. I really hated that shit. I did it for a while and then my back would get stiff. And I really just, the, the real result of the standing desk was that I was on the sofa a lot with my laptop. A laptop on my lap, craning my neck in a crooked way to uh, lie down on the couch while I was doing it. And now I got a stiff neck and I was spending way too much time on the couch as a result of my standing desk. Cause I thought, you know, obviously that sitting too much isn't good. And so I had this desk for like a year and a half and now I've just gotten rid of it and I just feel so much more relaxed, so much better. And I've been, you know, I've been running since then and stuff. So I probably do sit around, lie around too much, but at least I'm getting, you know, some rigorous exercise with it. So that's the, uh, it's a big change here. Uh, I got a bunch of ideas. I'll start with the more benign, easy one, and I'll kind of work my way up. Um, the uh, <clears throat> I know somebody, it's not really important who, um, not that she would listen to this podcast very much. It could be me. could be anybody really, this person, but I'm, I am thinking of somebody specific. Um, and she seems to, uh, you know, seems like externally well-to-do, uh, happy person. But uh, apparently, you know, she has a lot of demons and suffers quite a bit and tries a lot of different uh, modalities like therapy or SSRI medication or ayahuasca or mushrooms or whatever the the new uh, cure is. The latest thing to do is for, you know, to process this feeling and to deal with your demons. And, you know, I, it's sort of an ongoing process and um, there's always something else to do. and doesn't quite work exactly. It doesn't quite cure the problem. It just creates new questions, new ideas. And uh, I think I know actually though what her problem is. I haven't ever said this to her. I probably could. Maybe I will at some point. I doubt it will have an effect, except maybe to annoy her. But, and again, I, you know, we're all sort of in this boat. It's, it's, it's all of us, but it's just thinking of a person as a concrete example is her, her real problem, which I feel pretty certain of, is that she believes she has a problem. And if she could just face that problem, the idea that she has a problem, then I think the, uh, the, the issues would not be issues anymore. So the chief issue is that she thinks there's something that needs to be solved. And if you realize there's nothing to be solved, there's nothing wrong with you, then what are you left with? You're just left with feeling what you're feeling because you're going to still have feelings. Even if you don't have a problem, you still have a feeling. It's just the feeling's not a problem, right? The sadness or anger or frustration or anxiety, they're not going to go away just because you realize they're not a problem, but they're not a problem. They're just what you need to feel because they're present at given times. And so if you just feel what you have to feel and be yourself, be who you need to be, be who you are, then uh, there is no problem. And all of these purported modalities that help, they kind of just reify the problem, right? Because if you're taking ayahuasca to solve your problem, you're reifying the fact that you have a problem. Otherwise, why would you need to do that? Or if you're going to therapy, you're sort of saying, well, I go to therapy because I have to solve this problem. And so that basically doubles down on the fact that the problem exists. Whereas if you don't have a problem, but you're still going to have whatever you have, then 
Um, you're free to actually just let those things exist. Those emotions, those feelings, those uh, frustrations exist. They're not something to get rid of. They're just there. They're real. They're what you're experiencing and just to not have a problem with them. Anyway, uh, again, this is all of us. This is everybody. It reminds me of this uh, Zen proverb that there's two kinds of suffering, the kind that leads to more suffering and the kind that leads to the end of suffering. And if you're not willing to have the latter, you'll surely have more of the former. So you can keep doing these different modalities your whole life and uh, you, and you'll surely be able to keep going until you die. But if instead you face the feeling because you don't have a problem, you just have a feeling, then, you know, maybe that's the kind that leads to the end of suffering. You're not, not having the feelings, you're just uh, dealing with them as they are. And I don't know, it got me kind of thinking about, you know, all those modalities of therapy. And, and I'll give you an example. I think I talked about this before once, but if somebody's like, yeah, I'm going on an ayahuasca retreat with a shaman in Peru or something. And then they come back and they're like, oh, it was really deep. It was intense. It was blah, 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 whatever. You're not going to be like, oh, that person must be super enlightened now. They must have really got to the bottom of it. I'm going to really heed what that person is saying because I'm sure they're deeply, they've gotten some deep insight into the human condition now that they've done this ayahuasca trip. I mean, you're not going to think that. You're just going to think, oh yeah, this is that dude who went and got that trip. It's not going to really make any difference at all. Or if someone says, oh yeah, I've been in therapy for like six months. It's really helping. You're not going to think, oh, this person who's been in therapy for X amount of time, they must really have their shit together because they go to therapy. Now, if anything, if someone's been in therapy for a long time, you're probably going to think they're more fucked up than average. Nothing wrong with therapy or ayahuasca trips. I'm not judging it. I perfectly fine. And uh, I've done both myself. I don't have a, I don't have a, like a, because I've never done ayahuasca, but I've done other uh, hallucinogens. And I'm no, I don't have a problem with it. I don't think it caused me any harm. I just don't think it, you know, means that anybody should say, oh, he's done that. He's taken mushrooms a bunch of times. Well, I should really listen to what he's saying. Or he's been to therapy. Oh, he must really have his shit together. No, it doesn't really work like that. So in contrast to like, if I were like, you know, I played professional tennis for a year on the men's tour. I was 100th in the world. If that were true, which is not, unfortunately, as most of you know, uh, then, you know, I think you really would expect if we got on a tennis court that I would be really tough to beat, that I would destroy you in tennis, right? Like it, something like that, like you played professional tennis or, you know, you uh, studied, I don't know, French and lived in France and speak French. You would, you would expect certain abilities to flow from those facts. But, the you know, if someone says they did some ayahuasca trips or went to a therapist, you wouldn't expect results. He wouldn't expect anything really to be uh, significantly different about them or, you know, so, so that it just goes to show just like it's, it's obvious, you know, that, that, that stuff doesn't really work. I mean, it may temporarily, um, you know, make you feel better at the time, but does it really um, get to the essential issue? Usually not. So I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about, uh, Dante's Inferno, which I have not read, but I do have a copy of it in my bookshelf in LA. And uh, I don't think I'm ever going to read it, but at some point in my 20s, I thought it was cool to have that. So I bought it. And uh, I don't know if he's rolling over in his grave the way I'm going to uh, butcher this, but I'm not really, I don't really care about his 
take on it. I know a couple of things about Lucifer uh, chewing on the heads of Brutus and Cassius for betraying their benefactor in the ninth circle of hell. That's the worst thing you could do. But I haven't really read the book. But I'm just thinking about uh, heaven, hell, and purgatory. I'm writing something on it, but I'm just still editing it. And, you know, hell, I think, is the normal place that most people dwell. And I don't think hell, for me, my definition of it isn't, you know, being like burnt to death or Satan, you know, having his way with you. Um, it's, uh, it's the sense of like, you know, being on Twitter and scrolling endlessly, you know, just knowing you should be doing something more useful or engaging, but you're just sort of procrastinating and you're sort of doom scrolling on Twitter or doing a wordle puzzle or, um, the immaculate grid. I don't know. A lot of the sports guys do those. I do those too. You're like procrastinating, doing a little quiz, doing a little thing. It's comfortable hell, but you just have this nagging feeling that you're like procrastinating and, the sense of like, you know, underlying dread that you, you've still got to get to what you have to get to. You're resisting, you're, you're avoiding. Um, sort of like when you're trying to sleep in and you're restless and you know it's time to get up and you're just trying to avoid getting up. It's just sort of a sense of resistance. So that's hell. And I think that's the state that a lot of people dwell in most of the time. And the reason you dwell in hell voluntarily is because you want to avoid purgatory, which actually is painful which is that emotion underneath the, you know, verbalisms in your mind, the thought chatter. It's the actual feeling that's beneath that, the anxiety, the frustration, the anger, the dread, fear, all these deep feelings that you want to avoid. That's purgatory. Or, you know, when I go to the track and I foot is a little bit achy and my back sore and I've got three more miles to go and it's kind of chilly and drizzly and I just don't want to do it. You know, I just don't want to do it. Um, and I'm counting down the miles, which is kind of a, you know, staying in hell as much as you can and trying to be like, oh, I've only got two and a half left. I've only got two and a quarter left. Um, rather than just being in the discomfort of it and being like, well, oh, you know, how uncomfortable is this? Is it my chest, my foot, my back? Where's the, what's the thing that I'm so eager to get over with? And so that's purgatory. We don't like purgatory. It's just not comfortable. And so we sit in hell. And this is why I think that um, there's such like high diabetes, you know, people just snacking, eating sugary carbohydrates, and they know they got to stop. They know they got to get up and, and move and get some exercise that obviously that's good for them, work a sweat. But even though it's so accessible, um, you just got to go out your door, basically. Uh, it's purgatory. It's pain. It's just discomfort. Nobody wants to get out. And, and online, you can really sit in hell for a long time. John Paul Sartre said hell is other people. And I used to say, well, Facebook is hell when I was on Facebook. But, you know, Twitter is the same thing. And you can just sit in sort of your thoughts and anxieties around social media and just scroll and scroll and scroll and just look at stuff. And that to me is like the definition of hell. And purgatory is when you close that shit up and, you know, sort of the brain candy that keeps you engaged, this sort of low-level avoidant way, and just deal, you know, be bored, sit on your couch, and sit there and just be bored, you know, go for a walk, exercise, just that feeling of just boredom and just being in it and not avoiding it, you know, then you're starting to get into purgatory. And then, you know, the, the heaven part of it is sort of the, when you've, when you've done enough purging, when you've done enough purgatory, um, all of a sudden there's sort of a transformation where, you know, when I'm walking home from the track after a run, it's like the most pleasant walk. And I've talked about this through a shit neighborhood, not like dangerous, but it's not very nice not very uh 
aesthetically pleasing and I feel like I'm walking on the beach, but even better because I'm so, um, you know, got sweat and I'm walking and I just feel so relaxed and free flowing my thoughts from the run. And so that's sort of the, the heaven part of it. And that doesn't really last because eventually the, you know, you, you, you get faced with another bit of another choice between hell and purgatory, right? The heaven kind of wears off and then you're like, all right, do I avoid or do I face this? And all the time, that's the choice, right? You're either in the actual experience that you're having, weird as it is, uncomfortable as it is, uncertain as it is, entertaining the doubts in your mind, the actual not knowing what you're doing next. I mean, you know, you can walk down the street and be like, okay, well, I did my run. I'm going to do my other workout and I'm going to do this column and I'm going to do this. And then you're in hell. You're back to avoiding just being where you are. You're avoiding it. Um, and you're trying to, you know, give yourself a little pat in the back for having yourself organized and a good schedule. Um, and this, this to me is sort of the, the back and forth. It's hell, purgatory, hell, purgatory. And when you sit in purgatory long enough, that's the heaven part. And I think like once you uh, get really accustomed to just the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering, just welcoming in the purgatory, the karma, burning it off just without a big production about it. You just motion comes up, you feel it. You know, when the, if you're exercising, you feel what that is, you know, even if it's uncomfortable, you just do it for the time that you're doing it. You just get in it. Um, once, once it becomes sort of second nature, second nature to suffer that way, um, then that's what I think they call enlightenment. Once it's just, you know, there's no real separation between purgatory and heaven. Uh, I saw, an, uh, I don't know why he said was talking about this, but RFK Jr. was just some interview he had. And he was saying that, that he, he likes the Stoics. And there was the story of Sisyphus who's, you know, he pushes up that rock, that steep hill, and he can never get the hill, the rock up because it's too heavy to get to the top. It always rolls back down. He's got to push it up again. And he said that according to the Stoics, Sisyphus was lucky. He was like a, a very fortunate guy because he had his mission of pushing the rock. So the suffering of pushing that rock, never getting satisfaction from it, was itself um, a sense of purpose. And so he was lucky, and that he wasn't, you know, some, you know, miserable guy in hell. He was actually, you know, in purgatory. And if you get enough practice in purgatory, that's you know heaven. So that was just my idea, the idea that. You know, if you don't face your emotions and who you are, you can spend your whole life trying to fix things. And the fixing is the hell. There's nothing to fix, stuff to face. It's a George Carlin quote. He says, uh, if you think there's a solution, then you're part of the problem. And he wasn't talking about you know, personal self-help. He was just talking about, you know, save the whale, save the snails, you know, global warming and climate change and all the stuff that was still going on when he was alive. But you know, all these things that you're supposed to solve and all these busybodies and these, the UN wants Americans to eat less meat. It's like, stop busybodying, you know, about Americans. Just, they're, you, you know, you're, you're busybodying about other people. Why don't you just worry about yourself? You know, it's this whole, you think there's a solution, then you're part of the problem. Don't, don't be solving everybody's problems. Just handle your business, handle your own purgatory, your own life. So anyway, I was writing something about that. All right. So that was sort of the, this is the sort of e easy listening part. Um, there's uh, another thing that I was thinking about, which is uh, Reuters, the uh, the news service, uh, had some sort of 
they, they sent out a, a tweet post saying that the uh that the board that fired um with open ai that whole drama that went went on where the the board of open ai fired sam altman um it was because of a dangerous breakthrough you know there's sort of some dangerous ai breakthrough dangerous to humans because you know it became super intelligent and they you know reuters reported that they fired him because uh because they they thought something dangerous had happened and maybe he was pushing ahead too much or something and whenever i read something from an outlet like reuters you know a basic you know establishment outlet um i never think oh my god ai is dangerous they they made a dangerous breakthrough i should be very scared i think why why are they telling me this now and i think well of course they want me to be scared of ai and you know, they really they want me to fear it. So that's why they're, that's why I'm reading this is because if they say that happened due to a dangerous breakthrough, it's because it may or may not have been a breakthrough, but it's because they want me to be scared. Um, they may, you know, Ed, Edward Dowd, a guy who's done a lot of good um, work on the, uh, on the COVID vaccines causing harm, looking at actuarial data from insurance companies, uh, he, he said, you know, this is like perfect. This is almost, like, it might be a psyop where they get you to think this breakthrough has happened, right? This whole drama could just be like sort of a cover for, you know, the drama will make the story go viral that there's this drama and they fired the guy and there's all this infighting and it's very dramatic. And what's Microsoft going to do? And then that draws attention to the story, but the real sort of you know, nugget in the story is there was a dangerous breakthrough. So everybody has that takeaway. And then if, you know, there's some serious instability in the financial system and something happens, uh, they can pretty much say we were, you know, the AI got loose and hacked it, or they can make up something that was AI related to explain um, any kind of catastrophe that was actually caused by incompetence, malfeasance, you know, too much debt in the system, too much money spending. Anyway, I just think about that. That that's the kind of th thought I will have. I don't know that. I think he's just saying, "What if?" I don't think he's saying that's necessarily going to happen. It's speculation, but the idea of why are they telling me this, and what might this be used for? If if we all believe that a dangerous AI breakthrough has happened, what what might we be able to believe later, and what could that cover for? Perhaps I just ask these questions because. Um, I'm firmly convinced that Reuters and its ilk are not actually concerned with warning me about things that are dangerous to me personally. They would warn me about things like ISIS. They'd warn me about climate change. They would warn me about COVID. They would warn me uh, about cholesterol, all these things that I don't really believe are dangerous to me, but they would not warn me about seed oils, pesticides, vaccine adjuvants like aluminum and mercury. Um, they're never going to you know, say it warned me not to eat, you know, products from Frito-Lay or Nabisco. Does Nabisco even exist anymore? But, you know, Oreos and all that shit. The fact that the medical system kills so many people, that medical error is the third leading cause of death after heart heart disease and uh, and cancer. Actually, the Washington Post did, that was from the Washington Post. So give them credit for once. They did, they did actually warn in an article buried somewhere. But the stuff that they're pushing out there, AI is dangerous. There was a dangerous breakthrough, climate change, ISIS, the stuff that's on the front page. Um, I don't think they're really, they're warning, they want me to be afraid of certain things, that, especially things I can't control and that are also invisible, things that I can't see, right? I can't see the AI. It's probably infiltrating me as I speak. It's probably read all my files and who knows. Um, 
COVID you can't see. ISIS is nebulous terrorist. I, there's cells everywhere. Who knows? Cholesterol is, uh, what is it called? Like the, the, the hidden killer or the silent killer. So, you know, it's all stuff you can't see. You've got to take it on faith. Um, that's the stuff they want you to be afraid of. But the stuff that actually, you know, is in my control, like I can stop eating seed oils. I can eat organic produce. Um, I can avoid, I can ask what is in medicines and make sure that I avoid the ones that have aluminum and mercury. Um, the things that are in my control, they never warn me about. So, you know, if their mission were to warn you of actual dangers, these are the things you'd be hear hearing about, not these global things that you can do absolutely nothing about. So that was just a thought I had. I think uh, most people who are paying attention also don't really take the the messages of face value. But I mean, I think a lot of people are scared of AI, scared of climate change, scared of stuff. Uh, it's not that AI couldn't uh, do something, uh, theoretically. It's not that um, there couldn't be some period in the Earth's history that could be uh, difficult for us uh, climate-wise. All those things could happen. It's just that the stuff that they're making you fear is always for more control. We want more control over AI. We want more control over your carbon footprint. We want to control you. It's never, hey, all these things that you control, you should really uh, take care of yourself. Uh, okay, so here's the uh, here's the <laughs> here's the thing that uh, that I'm having trouble with this one, and this could be bullshit, but this is sort of the next level. Um, Elon Musk. Well, actually, I want to talk about this also, but I'll I'll talk about the Elon thing after. So Elon Musk first tweeted uh, before we get to the the interview that was uh, so interesting with the New York Times. He tweeted uh, something about. Well, I'll, let me back up a little bit. So Media Matters, which I talked about last week is this like scumbag fake uh, outlet that supposedly policing misinformation and disinformation and all of that. And it basically did a, a fake sting on Twitter showing that, or X or whatever, showing that there were Nazi posts next to like Apple ads and IBM ads. And then those advertisers uh, got cold feet and stopped, you know, pulled their ads because this content was showing up next to their ads. And it turns out that we'll see in court because, Elon sued them, but you know, that turns out at least from Twitter side that no, they basically um, Jerry rigged it to have those things show up. And those ads did not show up to any regular user uh, next to any of those brands. And so it's to a total fabrication and basically uh, actionable um, libel or tortious interference with contract or some sort of uh, civil action. Um, and fraud would be criminal if they, you know, if they can prove that they, you know, fraudulently allege those things. And so the, uh, the guy who founded Media Matters is a guy named David Brock. And he's, you know, it's one of those like play dirty DC political operatives, worked for the Clintons. And David Brock apparently uh, was romantically involved with this guy. Um, I forget the guy's name. It doesn't matter. But the guy that he was involved with for several years uh, was the owner of Comic Ping Pong or Comic Book Ping Pong, or whatever, which was the um, Pizzagate restaurant that was alleged that there was child trafficking and sacrifices and all this crazy stuff going on in the basement of this restaurant. And I can't remember what the deal was because I didn't really take it seriously at the time that some guy, you know, got wind of it or heard a rumor about it and then like went there armed to like try to kill everybody there, or break it up or something. I don't I really don't know. But that's not the, the important part. The important part is, so Elon is kind of under fire from these uh, operatives 
um, who are trying to get, you know, destroy his advertising base and make it look like, you know, Twitter's this like Nazi friendly platform. And, uh, and so he knows that this, I'm sure he, he knows that this guy's romantic partner was uh, the owner of comic book ping pong. And he tweets this sort of meme, the office meme where uh, Steve Carell is like, um, he's like, uh, says, I forget the woman's name, but he says something like, like, you know, pizza, you know, something about Pizzagate. And she's like, no, that's been debunked. And he says, no, but, um, you know, I think it could be real. And she says, no, we have uh, experts who've shown that it isn't. And then he says, but those experts went to jail for child pornography. So it turns out the guy who, you know, wrote like the definitive debunking of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory uh, just got sentenced to like 30 years in jail for child pornography. And so Elon Musk tweeted that. So he's basically resurfacing this Pizzagate thing that I thought was dead, right? Like I didn't really take it seriously. I, I didn't think people took it literally. I thought it was kind of like a meme or or something. Um, and so it was sort of this ridiculous, it was like the too far conspiracy, right? When when you would say something like, look, the lab leak, COVID came from a lab, people would yell at you and go, QAnon, Pizzagate, you know, like you're a Pizzagate truthers. You know, they, they would just try to equate you know, the lab leak, which was obviously a very, the most plausible explanation with outlandish conspiracies like Pizzagate, you know, and I'd be like, don't, don't lump me in with that shit. You know, I'm telling you, this is actually, you know, the lab leak is the most likely explanation. And the longer it goes on without a coherent zoonotic one, then this is the, you know, this is the base case. This is what we think that almost certainly happened. Anyway, so as much as I think that our uh, political class and the industry surrounding it um, are, you know, evil, you know, capable of anything, pretty much, um, from killing a million Iraqis for fake weapons of mass destruction for their own geopolitical ends to, um, you know, force injecting people, coercing people to inject themselves with untested chemicals that, that turn out to have horrible side effects and then mandating that. Um, as, as evil as I think they are, I never really was like, I mean, this isn't even like the Epstein stuff. I mean, I knew the Epstein stuff was true, um, but these are those were teenage girls, unethical and immoral as that is for those powerful people to be um, with those teenage girls. This Pizzagate stuff was like ch children, children, you know, I mean, like little kids. And so I just didn't think, like, I just, I just don't, I can't really relate even to why, why would anybody, what's the, what's the interest in that? And there's all these crazy identical, you know, uh, adenochrome, adrenochrome and all this shit. I'm like, that's just some crazy, crazy shit. Um, but there's, but because this resurfaced, I started looking into it a little bit and I'm having like some cognitive dissonance right now because I'm like, is this true or am I losing my mind? Like, is it just that, like, I think I'm losing my mind because even though I've updated my priors quite a bit, I haven't updated them enough. Or am I just losing my mind the fact that I actually think this is now plausible? not saying I, I know it's true. I, I think it's plausible. And here's sort of what um, makes me think it's plausible. So the social media posts from these people, the guy who owned this comic book thing and a couple of the other guys, the Podestas or whoever that they cited these social media posts, um, they're like weird posts with like kids taped up or masked up or weird, not like kids like cute posts of kids that people put on Facebook. I mean like 
perverse, very disturbing, weird stuff with kids. And as degenerate as I might have been at certain points in my life and as irreverent and not giving a shit um, or even being drunk, I would never, it just never even occurred to me to post something with little kids like that in that way. It's, just, it's so fucked up. So what kind of people would be posting that stuff on social media? So that was just, that's not, that's not like evidence that it's real. That's just probative of the character of these people and like, what is there even interest in kids like that? It's just so fucked. And then the other thing is the uh, the WikiLeaks emails that have like, you know, from Podesta and I think even in Hillary Clinton and, but, you know, different people. And they're talking about, in code about pizza and hot dogs and all these words that are apparently, according to the FBI, code words for um, for child uh, child molestation, child pornography. And... So you've got this, and and so I'm thinking, okay, maybe these social media posts are fake. Like some crazy people are putting these in my, you know, putting these on on Twitter, and I'm looking at it, and I'm believing it, but I'm like, yeah, but I don't know that anybody denied making those posts. I, you know, it's sort of like, are they like, has anybody said they didn't make those posts? Because I, I think they were just like that PizzaGate shit is crazy, dude. That's that's a conspiracy theory. That's that's a bunch of right wing nutters. That's some QAnon shit. I think that was the line of argument. Did they ever argue? No, I think, oh, the guy's name is James Alephantis. Did James Alephantis not post those things on his website? Did Was the art that was depicted as being on the walls of that supposedly family-friendly pizza place not really the real art that was in there? I mean, has anybody denied that those photos are real? Because that to me would be like, oh, yeah, it's just some crazy people um, making up shit, you know, like just, how is, you know, that, that to me would be, you know, serious libel, um, serious slander, uh, if, if that wasn't real. So I, I feel like that's the one thing. So maybe those posts are fake, right? But I, I've never heard anyone claim they're fake. They just sort of dismiss it. Like, don't look there. Don't look at this. That's crazy. That's right wing nut. But are those posts fake of those kids? Cause if you posted those for real, like I'm suspicious of you period as a person like period. I don't know what you did or I can't prove, but I'm, I'm like, you are not going near my kid. You are fucking suspicious as fuck. Okay. Um, all right. So there's you know, some other things like he, the guy who owned, um, James Alephantis owned, uh, apparently owned that comic pizza place. And so this, again, this may not be true, but well, it's not even important. That's a stupid detail. I'm not going to get into like, how did he, he was on a list of like the 50 most powerful people under a certain age in, in Washington. And why was a pizza place owner listed on that? But that's not, that's too peripheral. It's not even that important. Um, I think the more, uh, so so I, the, the two are, did they really post those social media posts? Because if they did already, like that's fucked, just posting that's fucked. Um, and then the other thing is the WikiLeaks emails. Are those emails real? Does WikiLeaks have a track record of being wrong and having fake emails? And the answer to that is no. WikiLeaks is pretty much everything that they've uh, published is real. And I don't think anyone's denied it. I think the reason Assange is in prison is because it's real, actually. He posted evidence of war crimes, um, people mowing down, uh, U.S. soldiers mowing down Iraqis during like a, rec a rescue mission of their own people. And that is why Julian Assange is in jail. It made the establishment look really, really bad. And um, so, so this is, this is disturbing, right? This is a real, 
a real problem. And so I, you know, again, I'm not saying it's real. I'm just saying, what the fuck are the social media posts? And I hope somebody says, no, 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 dude, those are fake. Those are just fake. Um, that's not, they didn't actually post those images that you saw. That's fake. Um, because WikiLeaks is pretty reliable. So I don't know. I, I hope that it's false. And that if it is true that the fact that Elon Musk tweeted to 165 million people gets people looking into what the fuck that was, because, um, maybe it's, maybe it was just a bunch of weird freaks, um, posting disturbing, irreverent shit. And that was the extent of it. Um, it's very, uh, weird that the guy who debunked it, the so-called journalist who debunked it is now serving prison time for child pornography. I mean, is that not weird? That's fucking weird. And is it not weird that this guy, um, David Brock is, was romantically involved. The guy owned that pizza place. And this is just very strange. So make of it what you will. Um, I never thought I would actually take seriously the pizza gate conspiracy on this podcast, but I just, I'm just being honest. I call it as I see it at this, it's very, very fucking disturbing. And, uh, I would, uh, we'll see what, we'll see what, you know, if anything comes of that, probably not. Um, okay. So the other thing that was kind of big was Elon Musk was at a New York times. I don't know, with some New York times book digest Q and a with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Sorkin's basically asking him like, Hey, you know, what do you, what do you think about all these advertisers bailing? Are you, you know, concerned? Do you think, you know, you need to tone it down? You know, that kind of, you know, basic questioning. And Elon kind of thinks about it for a second and goes, you know, they can fuck off, you know, or he says it a different way, but he said it, you know, fuck, you know, fuck them basically. And that was enjoyable to hear, but, but he made two points. One, one, which is obvious, but needed to be said, which is that, you know, I don't really, you know, I don't really care about Tesla or whatever, but he was basically saying to the extent, you know, that people care about the environment uh, and I care about the environment, but I just not really sure that CO2, I guess car emissions are pretty polluting. So I'm glad for less pollution, but I'm not sure that the inputs, you know, the uh, electricity that goes into the Teslas and the lithium battery mining and all that shit is net positive, but whatever, just uh, giving, you know, the cosmetic credit for where it's due. Um, He's saying, look, I, I'm the one doing something about this problem. And, but there's a lot of people who just want to look good and signal basically while they're doing evil. And he's like, he basically says, I care about actually doing something, doing good, not looking good. Now, I'm very suspicious of the do gooders. I don't, I'm not really into that. But the point is still a good point, which is that the people um, signaling that they, they're, they're off Twitter because this content is this free speech is too dangerous that's actually evil. You know, the free speech is the corrective mechanism of society without it. Um, you're in the dark ages. You, you know, you, you dare not defy the rule, uh, the will of God, the, what the priest says, what the church says. It's the same thing. It doesn't matter whether the guy's in a lab coat or a, a priest's, you know, garb. It doesn't really matter uh, what the uniform is that the guy's wearing. If you can't uh, speak your mind and say what you think is true, um, you've got a real problem and that's a much bigger problem than any individual harm that can come from speech. That's not very nice. And everybody knows this, who's even remotely familiar with human history, that the bad guys are the ones saying you can't do this. You can't speak freely. 
and that and that the harms are so much more significant from that kind of rule than just you know individual bad speech and so that all these people just want to look good they just want to pull the ads and so say yeah i wouldn't advertise there that's racist over there that's sexist that's transphobic you know whatever whatever they're virtue signaling about and why they they pulled out but the more interesting thing that he said was when ross sorkin pushed him and said well i mean what's going to happen you you're going to keep this company running you have some resources and he's like no if if they if all the advertisers pull out then the company will be dead and he was sort of like okay well so it'll be dead because you said the stuff you wanted to say they said no it'll be dead because they did an advertising boycott and and Andrew Ross Sorkin was sort of like, okay, well, you know that that's, I don't know, it wasn't Andrew Ross. It was is Elon was like, and and then we'll document exactly why the company went out of business. You know, we'll, and he was like, well, you know, that's you doing that. And he's like, no, it's the advertisers doing that. And he's like, and Elon's like, well, we can just let the judge decide. And Sorkin was like, oh, well, a judge will say, but and he's and he didn't realize. And then Elon said, no, 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 the judge is the people. You know, we'll let planet Earth decide what they think about that. And the message is kind of like, okay, you you cancel culture people, you boycotters for you know the crime of allowing free speech to be on a platform. Um, you might be able to bankrupt Twitter or X or whatever, but the people will know that you did that. And so that stain is going to be on your brand too. We're in the information age. So you know, it does it make Apple remember think different those ads? You have like Bob Dylan and John Lennon and whoever on those ads, Albert Einstein, think different. And now they're boycotting the free speech. And I don't even think Twitter is really the free speech platform, but it's way better than the other ones at least. And how does that reflect on the think different brand, Apple, and all of these other um, companies that are no longer advertising? And, you know, it would be quite easy to have a list of which ones pulled out based on a you know, especially if the lawsuit shows that the uh, the media matters perpetrated a fraud, it would be very easy to say, "Look who fell for the fraud!" and was happy to signal um, their goodness. And I, I think that is how it needs to go, right? Like, okay, fine, you can signal to other people what a good company you are, what a good person you are. You know, for piling on somebody who said the wrong word or allowed something to be said or whatever. But people are also no, people see it, people see the virtue signaling. And I think that's the way to go is be like, fuck you. And he, you know, he was basically like, um, what are they going to stop me from running the platform as I see fit or speaking my mind, um, by blackmailing me over money, f you know, fuck them. And that's how, you know, that's how I feel, which is fuck them. You know, like there are people obviously in the fantasy industry who, you know, they were just pissed that I was <laughs> objecting to outdoor masking. that was like the most benign thing ever. Um, and they wanted to report me. They wanted me to get fired. They wanted me to shut up. Um, and, you know, not only did I not shut up, but everybody now knows that they were doing that. Like they saw it. So yes, like on the one hand, you can be aggressive in a pettiest possible way, trying to join the crowd to um, go after somebody who's is saying something you don't like. But on the other, everybody's watching you do that too. And they're not, people aren't that stupid. I mean, some people are, but a lot of people are not. And they see who you are. And it's kind of like, who would you trust more, right? A person who said some uncouth shit, some shit that was against the consensus. Um, last week I was talking about 
if I if it's a question of right or wrong, I must be wrong. Ai Weiwei, the Chinese dissident, he said, I must be wrong. Would you rather trust the person who must be wrong, who says the thing that's out of step with what everyone else is thinking, or the person that is policing everyone for being out of step, the person who's trying to, um, through coercion and um, passive aggressiveness or, or active aggressiveness, um, trying to police what people can say? Who would you trust more as a friend? Who would you rather uh, spend time with? The guy who would rather be wrong, um, as long as it's what he believes, um, or who uh, would rather uh, shut people up and make sure that you know there's no wrong think. And, and that that to me is an obvious choice. I think most people um, would rather you know would would agree that you know the person that you would trust is somebody who um, will say some shit that they believe and and take a risk that it that it's out that it's out of consensus and it might end up being wrong and it might end up being right, but. Um, but that's not the requirement. Isn't, uh, it being acceptable for other people. Um, the, the requirement is that you, you think it's true. So I don't know, maybe that's why I'm talking about, uh, the Pizzagate thing. Cause I think that there's like now a, I can't put a number on it, you know, but like significant chance that that's true or that there's enough truth in it that, you know, that this is like serious investigation that, that we, they should look into this. Um, and again, I'm open to being absolutely wrong about this, but I'm just going by the little bit of, uh, stuff that I did see. All right. I think that's it for now till next time.